0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast with me, Darren Leslie. I've been a teacher in Scotland for over eight years and I've loved every single minute of it. My mission in this podcast is to inform, challenge and inspire you to teach with joy. So in this podcast today, I am joined by a teacher who has taught for over 10 years in English secondary schools. He is a speaker, trainer, and organizer of multiple teaching conferences, including the Teaching and Learning Takeover. His goal is to make teachers more aware of what might work in the classroom by bridging the gap between research and practice. And he's also the author of the excellent "Relearning to Teach, David Fawcett. David, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: No worries. Thank you very much for asking me.
0: Not a problem at all. And we're just going to just start, start off. Could you share a, l- a little bit about you, like a potted history of your career today uh, and what you do now?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I trained uh, in the early 2000s uh, up at Montford and Leicester, uh, Bedford, obviously as a PE teacher. I uh, did a four-year course uh, and then very lucky, very fortunate. I did a four-year course to uh, apply for a job uh, down in Southampton. Uh, which was one of those jobs you, you, you get in there quite nervous and so on. And then um, throughout the day, there's one position available. And then as the day went on, you know, we had an assistant head teacher coming in and go, all oh, right, so do, do, you, do you know which two are going to get it? And we were like, two people. And then towards the end of the day, we had a deputy head teacher come in and went, oh, yeah, so which three have they selected? And we we're like, what, three jobs? So in the space of a day in the morning, um, we had a one position open up to three. So I was very lucky to get a, a, a job in a, in a fantastic school in Southampton. Um, and then pretty much like worked my way through for the first couple of years. Um, probably a bit too overconfident, maybe a bit arrogant as such. Uh, which is what one of my NQTs I started with said. Um, you know, she, she's she's the, the the godmother of my children at the and she's um, she said when we first started, you were so arrogant and things like that. Uh, so about how you taught and so on. Uh, and then spent a couple of years, uh, got promoted in the first two years, uh, and got the role of what's called a learning innovator. Um, and then during that role of a learning innovator, my job was to work with other teachers and to go across school, uh, to implement a, a, a learning program for students, um, which I'm a bit ashamed of now, um, and then it just just help out doing loads of insets and twilights and things like that. And it was just a phenomenal time in my career. Uh, and I think it was towards the end of that that I kind of really realized that um, I need to take a look at myself. So did that. Uh, now as a a, a head of PE over in another school in Southampton uh, and I've been there for about three years four years now Um, just trying to put all my plans into place within the curriculum and seeing if if actually what I'm talking actually um, comes to fruition and and actually has some impact on students learning so that's pretty much my career at the moment.
0: That sounds fantastic I I can reflect a lot on myself and I'm a a PE teacher as well and, and definitely at the start of my career I perhaps was was perhaps a little bit too arrogant um, and obviously now I'm kind of in a similar position where you are looking at my own teaching. So thinking about that, um, what led you to, to writing ReLearn to Teach?
1: Um, I think one of the biggest things is um, I was doing my job as a learning innovator which was just phenomenal, one of the best jobs I've ever had, almost like a mini AST and you know everyone used to kept saying oh go and see Dave's lessons and uh, oh I want a new way of questioning oh go and see Dave Dave's got some new ways and stuff like that so I used to get them, all these people coming towards me and, and my deputy teachers to send us out and work in different departments and stuff but then the problem came with when my GCSE results kept coming through and they were very average and I mean ridiculously average all the time and, and people were just massively outperforming me and I'm thinking how can I be the person that everyone comes and sees me and and, and comes and has a look at my lessons and stuff like that when actually you know my results aren't, aren't fantastic you know and um, So I had a look at myself, really reflected quite hard. A bit of a humbling, to be fair. Uh, And I just looked at the amount of stuff I chucked in there, you know, getting kids out of seats to write on desks and walk around and stick things here and there around the room and make things out of plastic and that sort of stuff. And and probably in the right classroom, you know, teachers that are doing that at the moment are getting some fantastic things out of their students. But it was literally just lesson after lesson of just piled together activities and so on. Had no real impact. So I kind of just sat down and thought, I, I need to sort this out. Um, I was really lucky at the time to have a guy called Chris Fuller, who started as a language specialist at our school. He used to do some work with the SSAT, load stuff around county and that sort of thing. And he was just like, look, you need to get yourself on Twitter, have a look around, like read blogs and so on. And it just opened my eyes up to, to all the stuff that I thought I was doing, which had some sort of impact, which which really didn't. And then I know at the time when I first got onto Twitter, lots of people were talking about John Hattie and his book, and I thought, I need to read this. And I did. And I know there's lots of people picking flaws in Hattie and his effect sizes and that sort of stuff. But I think as a kind of like gateway into to research, it massively opened my eyes. And it made me kind of realize that yeah, so much stuff that you do in classrooms isn't as good as you think it is. Um, and sometimes you have to kind of like bite the bullet and and relearn how to teach. And I just sat down. I took one thing at a time. Um, and as I went through, I, I blogged about it um, on my blog and just talked about all the things which I kind of learnt from all the readings I've done, all the books I've read and I remember at that time I had no children and stuff so the summer holidays I could actually sit in the garden while the wife was at work and just read book after book after book and then out of nowhere Routledge just LinkedIn, one of my friends said you need to get a LinkedIn account so I did, it literally lay dormant for about six months and then out of nowhere um, a representative from Routledge said I've read your blog, it, it just makes so much sense, do you want to to a book for us and I was like uh, uh yeah go for it done so it kind of came out of fruition there but then it just took two years of just hard graft to try and like get it out and I know some people can turn a book around in like six months or whatever it is but um yeah two years just making sure that stuff I was saying was was what I believed kind of pretty accurate actually was working in my classrooms and just kind of got loads of stories there to kind of do it so yeah it's a bit busy busy time
0: I can, I can imagine um, well the rest of our questions are kind of, kind of delve a little bit into your book and and try and eke out some of the, the things you say so um for that well while, while doing the research for your book and, and, and writing your blog and thinking about your own development, what were the most surprising things that you discovered
1: um first of all teaching is it's not hard well it's too hard to unpick into its little isolated factors and stuff. So I remember when I first started writing my blog, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to focus on feedback first. And then when I've done that, I'm going to look at lesson planning. And I did that. And then I'm going to look at questioning. wanna really then, someone says, you want to write a book for it. You then kind of realize that actually teaching is really complicated and so many issues kind of overlap. And I remember emailing Jeff Petty, who's literally like a legend in evidence-based research and form practice, that sort of thing. And I mentioned about lesson planning. And he said, look, you, you can really hard in terms of research like, uh, um, like trials and stuff like that to kind of unpick like, lesson planning, for instance, on its own because so many things kind of link into lesson planning and things like that. So it, it kind of made me realise, you know what, yeah, you're right. Um, I remember doing an inset last week at school about, about questioning. I said, look, questioning is questioning, but so much kind of overlaps with feedback and planning and so on. So the, the, one of the most things which I never thought, okay, and it's so obvious now I say it's that, that teaching is just so complicated and everything overlaps with everything and it's it's kind of ridiculous. And kind I've of also realised, obviously, when I was reading through my book, I think I tweeted out one day that the more I'm reading, the more I realise I know nothing about teaching. And I think it was every book that I've read kind of made me realise, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, every day I'm in a classroom I'm teaching and stuff uh, and I'm with kids trying to explain how to to learn things about aerobic respiration and stuff like that and I'm thinking, do you know what? Actually, I just read this book about cool society. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Just read a book about assessment for learning by Dylan William. I didn't realise you do that. Just read a book about questioning. Yeah, I don't do that. So there's so many things that kind of kind of jumped through and I kind of like like just just popped out that, like, that the more I read, the, the less I knew. And I kind of also thought about um, about the amount of times where all the good intentions and stuff. And it was a big realising factor. There's so many things out there which, which teachers on like, the TS forums and on Twitter and things like that, you know, they share their best intentions. Oh, this is a fantastic new idea and things like that. And actually when I was researching my book it kind of made me realize, you know, sometimes these best intentions aren't so good. You know, I remember when triple impact marketing came out, you know, I remember like, David Dada wrote a, a blog about it, you know, based on the work that Jackie Beer had done. And I thought this sounds absolutely fantastic. But then when people then kind of jump on the bandwagon and then they automatically then start making triple impact marketing, like, quadruple marking and on marketing, you know, it just goes out spirals mm-hmm. out of control and these good ideas kind of just go further and further and further. And doing all the research and stuff, when you you're doing your book, you kind of realise actually just keeping it simple is probably the best way. And if we stick to what the original research source said, then we're we'll probably onto more of a winner than all these kind of like ideas just keep spiraling out of control. So, you know, it, it was quite an eye opening time reading the book and loads and loads of stuff to kind of like made me realise about actually what we as teachers do in the lesson and how complex it is no
0: I, t- I totally agree with that um, um, my my good lady is a, a dentist and we have chats all the time about every time she opens someone's mouth everything she does is, is current best practice and sound and research because there's so much research out there i think we as teachers can can get can get lost in it and we need to now na- better to navigate our way through but i totally agree with you as, as, as i'm reading and i'm developing as i'm chatting to to people that have written books, the message is all coming through about how there's so many things that, that we do, and we maybe just don't do them well enough because we just don't know. And 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 we will never you're never going to get a perfect lesson with a perfect teacher because, as you say, there's so many different factors.
1: I think people need to stay away from that as well. I think a lot of people are searching for the perfect lesson, but I t- you know, somebody may correct me, but I don't think there is a perfect lesson. There's so many variables in the lesson which which can. Can come into factor and in different things on different days, different prime knowledge, that sort of stuff. You know, it, it's so difficult. And go back to your point about obviously, uh, as a dentist, came up with current, up to date practice. I think with all best intentions, because teaching is such a busy time, sometimes we kind of look for the quick fixes. Mm-hmm. And I think people look on Twitter and the TES forum and stuff, like that, and and there's no harm in it, and take an idea and try and run with it and that sort of thing. But actually, I don't think sometimes we understand why we're doing what we're doing. And again i said the first six years of my career were magpieing ideas and chucking them into lessons and actually i did not have a clue about why they were good ideas how they worked and so on so i probably used a lot of them like incorrectly so i think that's a big thing as well understanding why we're doing stuff
0: no t- totally agree with, with that sentiment there and um, so early in your book you, you tackle the idea lesson and planning you alluded to it a little bit a couple of minutes ago so what issues arise if, if you don't plan in advance and instead you, you stitch together activities that make a, a lesson look busy?
1: There we go. So um, yeah, I remember Professor Robert Coe when he they released the, the, his thing a few years back, 2014, I think it was, talking about like, the poor proxies for learning. And I remember that came up as like, um, yeah, busy lessons aren't always conducive to, to good learning. And that kind of made me think, oh, my God, that was my lessons for the first six years. Just let's just do as many activities, fireworks, pyrotechnics, a lot. Um, and actually what I realized, obviously, you know, and, and it comes with lesson plan. If, if you just do that, you know, you probably kind of miss, first of all, on, on the content knowledge that you're really trying to get across. Uh, I think a lot of the time also you're kind of missing the big facts about getting kids to think, you know, and. Um, I could get kids to write on tables and make plastic models. And I remember sticking sugar paper around the room, but actually how much thinking was going on in my lesson. And I think that's kind of been my, my biggest factor. And again, if you don't plan in advance about the level of thinking, you know, we had a department tonight and I said, look, the first thing you need to think about, because we're, we're looking back at some of the learning walks you've done of late, you know, we need to think about how much thinking is going on to our lesson. You know, we can't leave it to chance. We need to make sure we're planning actual activities, planning backwards and, and thinking about where we're trying to get to, what's the highest standard we can get and how much thinking is going to get us there. So that was one of the biggest things. And I think also if we don't actually plan our lessons in advance well enough, we kind of miss laying the foundations of the learning that we want to get. I think sometimes, you know, we sometimes get duped into using things like Bloom's taxonomy, for, our, for example. And uh, people look at that and they want to kind of shoot to the top and get to the create and evaluate and analyze. But I think, you know, if we don't plan our lessons properly in advance stuff, we, we kind of forget the fact that we need to get like the, Remembering the understanding kind of solidified before we kind of move on. And and again, if we we just map together loads of activities, again we're missing out loads of bits and that. And I also think as well, in terms of looking at the, the, the bigger picture, a lot of the time, especially in my first six years, and I see it now when I work with teachers still, that a lot of teachers still plan for just lessons, but actually don't plan for longer periods of time. And again, that should be our, our underlying thing. You know, it may take two or three lessons to get to a particular endpoint. And when we do get there, how does that fit into the bigger narrative of the topic or unit that we're teaching? I mean, you know, really good schemes of work and so on like that, like link into really good lesson planning and, and forgetting the fact that, you know, a lesson is an isolated thing, you know, lessons, you know, they, they, they go on and on. Um, you know, consistently I'm going back in, in my year 11 class, the stuff that I taught back in year nine, that lesson hasn't technically finished. I'm still recapping interleaving stuff back in and so on. Um, it, it's, it's just it's crazy. And if you don't plan your lessons properly enough, and, and have that bigger long term plan in, 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 in the forefront of your mind, then you're you're just going to set yourself up to fail a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I I totally agree with that. And, and finding the time to. And taking the time sorry to, to plan your, your lessons and thinking what's your end point and working back is definitely something that I feed back to, to students quite a lot what what I really enjoyed about about this chapter is, is being a, a football man myself you managed to somehow stitch in uh, the idea of Barcelona FC's famous rondos into it so could you elaborate on, on how you managed to do that in terms of lesson planning yeah so uh, I,
1: sh- shame that it wasn't my idea so I am um... Obviously, obviously, as a PE teacher and stuff, you know, we work hard, deliberate, deliberate practice all the time. You know, we we practice and we practice and we practice, and we, we, we look at the trying to teach the kids the, the core fundamentals and so on. And, and it's very similar to obviously what like Barcelona and Guardiola used to do. But I remember I, that wasn't my idea when I when I was trying to write the book. You know, I, I contacted Doug Lemov and stuff, and we had a, a phone call one day, um, and I said, you know, lesson plan. It's so complicated. What what are the key things you need to do? And he said, well. You need to be a bit more like Pep Guardiola. You need to think about what are the day-to-day really high-impact things you do every single day which have got the biggest impact. You know, the question you ask, the way you give feedback, the way you give your explanations, the way you deliver instructions, the demonstrations you do, the modeling you do, they are your rondos as such. And you need to just deliberately practice those things over and over and over and over again. And your dog's absolutely right, you know. There are key things that we do day in, day out on a hundreds of times in the day and we need to make sure like Barcelona do their rondos and so on we need to make sure we just drill them over and over and over again we practice and practice and get better and reflect and so on and, and spend that time deliberately working on those things so that we get, get really really good at the core things that happen every single lesson like the question like the feedback and so on um, so Doug used a fantastic analogy there uh, and you know the, the way that obviously you um, that, that, that i then plan lessons and stuff i make sure that every single lesson i've got my do now task i make sure every single lesson i've got a hinge question i make sure every single lesson i've got a particular way of giving feedback and every single lesson i've already planned out my questions and not i'm going to ask and so on i've got those key things that happen over and over again the students are very used to them and so on and it kind of just overlaps and overlaps and just builds that practice and and as i said students just get better and as me as a teacher i get better as well
0: that's brilliant <laughs> I love I love that I love that idea and 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 just having your standard. This is this is what we do, and the kids will get used to it. And if you deliberately practice it, you'll just get better and better in and the learning. Of course, the young people will will hopefully get better alongside that. And um, moving on now, you, you you talked about tackling myths head on, and and I've spoken to a few people now that that have mentioned myths in education. But to you, um, what myths still exist in teaching that, that just simply shouldn't anymore?
1: Uh, well, uh, you, you, when you write the book and stuff like, uh, I went through a an annoying process where I, uh, I talked about some of the brain myths and things, you know, talking about learning styles and VAC and that sort of thing. And then actually, when I was writing my book, uh, I was obviously keeping an eye on Twitter and that sort of stuff, and it didn't really come up. And I was thinking, oh my god, have I, am I talking about a myth which actually probably has been very much dispelled now? Uh, but then recently, again on Twitter, like people are talking about ITT training and PGC training, and these things are still part and parcel. And I remember, you know, we, I met with some student teachers the other week and I was giving some stuff to them and again, like learning styles came up and I'm thinking, I, I didn't realise this was in. Um, and, and as a school, you know, we've, I've worked quite hard to dispel some things like the learning styles and the VAC myths and again, um, I ran some Twilight Inset training last week and, and VAC and learning styles came up. So things like that just, just, just keep coming around um, over and over again and again, it's, it's one of those ones where there's not much research basis and so on and I don't know where it's come from but again they become so ingrained that that people kind of now 100% believe that they happen I mean, when it comes down to like revision time as well you know the 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 cone of learning kind of pops up again and stuff and I I spent time obviously like dispelling that in my book as well about you know you remember 10% of this and 20% of that and so on and just to really go back to the origins and that, that wasn't ever how it was intended and there was no percentages linked to it and so on but still you check google those sorts of things still, still still crop up which is which is pretty crazy you know that um, like all these people out there trying to dispel them but but they're still there there, there are other things as well um, I think a lot of people still quite confused maybe not a myth but maybe just a misunderstand about how like the brain works and stuff mm. um, I know a lot of people still think about the right side left side brain and this side to creativity and you must do this that, and the other so that that kind of comes in a little bit but again it's going to take a long time for for PGC courses and teacher training and insets and deliveries of, of insets and stuff like that to kind of get these messages and, and, mm. and kind of like share them so people kind of kind of dispel them a little bit.
0: Absolutely, I think with with some of them you get that the idea of confirmation bias coming in. You you have a belief and then you see you, you perceive incidents to be a certain way and and you continue to believe them even though there is these a lot of these things the research research has come is coming more and more that things like learning styles left side right side um of the brain they are being dispelled by researchers every year but access but i think that's one of the issues both accessing the research as teachers and actually because your, your day-to-day is so busy that yeah. finding the time and, and getting the messages through to you about the research and the evidence-informed practice can be quite hard so
1: as you say, it will take quite a while. Um, um, you know, it, it, it's only because I've been on Twitter, and obviously, not every teacher is on Twitter, so they don't see the blogs, they don't see the research being shared on there. Um, a lot of the the research is behind paywalls, but and not every school has access to it. And you're right, you know, who does have the time or, or the money to to get their own account? And do schools have the money to get a, uh, a license to to get uh, access to research papers and so on? You know, if I didn't have Twitter. If I didn't read books, and if obviously I didn't have the access to the research I do have access to, then as a, 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 an everyday teacher, how, how do I get that information? You know, um, school just doesn't have time some days to, to get that out. You know, when do you share these things and so on? It, it takes somebody dedicated within the school to, to share that. Uh, I know places like Dorrington and so on. You know, the, the research school mm-hmm. they are filtering that through, but um, not every school has got that. We haven't got that. Um, so again, it's just up to to, to those that. Are seeing these little glimpses to share it, but because otherwise, how do you dispel the myths? That this is always going to be there because someone's told them, and you never had an opportunity to, to to change their thoughts on it.
0: No, exactly. Like you say, I've I've spoken to a few people who work in who are the research lead or the research and CPT lead in schools in England, but up in Scotland, that role doesn't exist. So maybe we have maybe we could learn from from the system there, but obviously we have we have a long way to go to to dispel those myths and to get. One thing that you said there it's, it's really interesting because i know that if if you're a t- trainee teacher in australia one of the key learning in your program is understanding of how the brain learns and how the brain works but here we don't seem to to do that and it's only after you be- you become a teacher that you, you start looking into well hold on why are they not learning that which which brings me on, on to my next question um one of your chapters st- is kind of headlined by this, but what did you discover when when you ask yourselves the question, why do they seem to remember in lessons but then forgetting tests?
1: Well, I think I think you've like picked up a little bit there. You know, um, you know, we, we work with students' brains every single day in terms of understanding learning and storing memories and things like that. But yeah, you're right. Nobody ever teaches you that when you go to to PGCs or or. I did a four-year course. So we did units all the way through. We did teaching patients all the way through the four years. So we spent a little bit more time in the classroom and so on. But even then, we didn't spend much time looking at about work and memory, long-term memory and so on. So actually, when I kept looking back at my grades in my first six years and thinking, I'm supposed to be the go-to person, but my grades aren't, aren't good at all, there's, there's something missing here. And it was, I think Daniel T. Williams' book was the one which kind of recommended to me as kind of like the first book to get into. And again, I read that book from front to back within days because I was just gripped and hooked. And I, I really don't understand why you know, that book, I, I know it's, it, there are many other books out there, but that book should be you know, an essential read for, for most people um, because it just made me aware of actually, I had no idea about how the brain worked, yet my job was to instill knowledge into people's brains. Okay, So I was kind of going blind as such. Um, and again, you know, the, the amount of tests I did, and you, you think in a lesson, you, you know, you you go over stuff and you give an explanation, you demonstrate, the students do a task, and that sort of stuff, and you ask them do they all understand, they all nod back at you. But then, you know, three, four weeks later, they do a test and you're literally banging your head on the table because the common misconceptions are cropped up and you think, I, I went over that. So again, it, it, it was crazy. And I think going through that chapter really immerse myself, you know, I, I I was so blessed, you know. Um Yana Weinstein, you know, she came over from the learning scientist to my school back in I think like twenty fourteen. We flew her over from America, um, I had a chance to pick her brain. Um I was part of a Slack group as well, where they they went through my curriculum and so on. Uh, I, I worked uh, had my chapter read over by Veronica Yan, who worked at the Bjork Institute. Um and just going backwards and forwards of like research and stuff to try and find out actually how things go. And, you know learning about working memory you know I, I knew that sometimes saying things too complicated students didn't get it but actually having a proper reading about working memory and cognitive overload and understand how that works and then the link between that and long-term memory kind of just opened my eyes and, and maybe just think about explanations and how i can actually simplify things or use models and so on or or dual coding things like that to help make the actual point of delivery of my instruction just so much better. Um, it just made me transform that. And then I remember like going through and understanding about schema. You know, you know, if I asked you now really quickly to name as many things as you can about Hawaii, I'd hope you'd probably come up with twenty 30 things: songs, sound, smell, sight, memories, um, films about Hawaii, people from Hawaii, that sort of stuff. You know, but if I asked you about paleomagnetism. You, you, you try and work out what paleo meant and maybe what magnetism meant and kind of to hash together some sort of idea, but you wouldn't have as many things. And, and understanding about that prior knowledge and different levels of schema and then how to then build up schema over time and so on was just, you know, research that chapter has made the way I deliver lessons and the way that I now teach other teachers to deliver lessons just hopefully to, 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 to better things. I think the biggest thing, obviously, reading that chapter as well was the work of Robert Bjork, which I'm sure a lot more people are a lot more familiar with now, um, and all about the desirable difficulties. Um, and again, you know, some of the tasks I did in lessons were just just to to, to add fireworks to my lessons, to, to make it, you know, if, if my head of department or my uh, assistant head teacher walked into the classroom, it looked good, but actually, was there enough thinking and learning going on? Not really. So, you know, reading about the desirable difficulties and understanding about actually Learning can be really hard, and actually, it's probably preferential that it is t- tough, and so on. um You know, that that was just just amazing when I, when I was writing the the, the the chapter out, and just made me realise that you know, more teachers, like you said at the start, need to know, like Australia, how the brain works, so that we can get teaching right from day one.
0: Absolutely, it needs to be it needs to be a key, especially when we're working with such young people who are changing all the time, having an understanding of how what we're saying goes into their brain and then understanding how we keep it in their brain and can retrieve that back out has to be key for for teacher learning moving forward. Um, And kind of going further there, questioning is a a new in skill of, of like a truly great teacher. Like We ask loads of questions, but what should we focus on when planning our questions and what strategies have worked for you?
1: Um, I think I think primarily it comes all the way back to obviously when you plan your lessons I think in my early days when I did plan these kind of like gimmicky lessons and something like that you know I never once thought about what type of questions I was going to ask um, and I think it's come with experience as well as obviously uh, reading up on the topic and so on but, but now whenever I plan a lesson I, I'm thinking first of all about the sticking points of lessons now again this comes from experience but I know for instance i mentioned it at the start you know when i teach anaerobic respiration and aerobic respiration i know at that stage some students are going to get stuck but that's experience that tells me that but now when i'm planning my lessons i now know that that's going to be a sticking point so i plan questions which i can ask at that time to move the learning forward um and i think more teachers need to get into good habits of planning beforehand and i remember I think Doug Lemoff tweeted out uh, uh, an image uh, from a blog post which he he wrote a little while ago where a teacher, um, he he observed, was actually planning out the questions that she was going to ask and even follow-up questions in her lessons, and she just scribbled it on her plan. And it was just in pen, simple as that. And I've shared it with teachers that I work with at the moment. Now, you need to plan your questions beforehand. And I think also it kind of goes that once you're planning your questions, I think you need to know how to challenge people. I remember like Graham Nuttall saying that, you know, Students know on average 50% of what you're going to teach them in a lesson, but every child knows a different amount of that. So so you may know 10% of what I'm going to teach you, but somebody may know 50% of what I'm going to teach them and so on. So you need to plan questions in which are going to have up your sleeve that if if I do ask a student on a topic who's got low prior knowledge, a good question is going to drive them forward in their learning. And then maybe a student who, who knows lots about a topic, I've got a question already planned out beforehand, which I can then push them on, maybe pull it down from A-level, maybe interleave a question uh, from another topic and so on that may link in and so on. So again, all this planning questions and, and beforehand, before you even go in the classroom, is, is really, really important. I think one of the biggest things about, obviously, when you're in a class that, that I I never thought of before is the amount of wait time. And I know that's talked about a lot and it's pretty obvious and so on. Uh, and I mentioned it in the book about the fact that, you know, we, we, we wait on average less than a second before we take an answer. We pose a question, some kid rifles their hands up in about 20 seconds uh, sorry in about 0.2 of a second and we pick them straight away and actually have we actually allowed other people in the class an opportunity to kind of have time to think about it so more and more now i i, I definitely leave 10 seconds in a lesson and then i don't always just just leave it as a silence I, I also have prompts now and i think it puts them in the book about to prompt students what to do with those 10 seconds because for some students that 10 seconds is a it's a pretty lonely, long time, so on. And, and and some will just spend that 10 seconds gazing out the window. So, again, it's, it's having that, that prompting about, right, it's 10 seconds going on. Here's the question. Maybe use uh, the second paragraph on your handout. That might help you. So I'm kind of prompting people to use that wait time effectively um, to kind of do it. And I think the kind of final bit of that is that you need to have a system in place where every child knows that they could potentially be asked, and I remember every time I say this to, uh, like, new teachers or even experienced teachers that you need to have, like, a no-hands-up rule or use a Doug Lemoff cold-calling technique and so on, they're like, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit brutal. What about that kid that hasn't got good confidence and so on? But then I, I get them to come to my lessons and I say, look, you teach half the students and, and some of these have got low confidence. Yeah, maybe, but there's now an instilled belief in this lesson that even if you are going to get picked, which, you know, I do at random, um, that... Your answer will never be belittled. It will always be taken. I will always help you to develop that answer and so on. Um, But every single one of you, when I ask this question, needs to have an answer in your head. Uh, And there's such a culture now, which I try and instill in my classes, where you have that wait time. Maybe they write an answer down to help them. And then I will literally pick at random and then try and get as many responses as I can. Um, But students now feel safe in an environment where they feel supported. And if they do get the answer wrong, then i've got systems in place where i kind of follow up questions or help them out to kind of get the right answer so every single class linked back to that thing about the course of science every single child and every single class in my lessons hopefully thinking all the time
0: brilliant i, I love that having i think the key message there about planning planning your question and, and then setting that culture we've uh, just in a, a block of work for for our Professional learning and and kind of looking at formative assessment, and I think often in week time, and also um, uh, not allowing any child to opt out of questioning to make sure that they are learning. Everyone is is moving forward with their lessons, with with their learning. Sorry, um, feedback is, is is a hot topic when when we mention workload. Um, and you mentioned earlier the ideas of triple marking and all the, and these these marking fads that that kind of this this keep they just keep reappearing. Um, but thinking about feedback, what can we do to make sure our feedback is meaningful and and that it moves learning forward?
1: Uh, so again, workloads the biggest thing. You know, I remember in the days of old where you know I had to write X number of comments in, in everything. Um, I had to make sure I red penned everywhere and I marked every light. Like, three lessons or something. and so on and it's crazy and, and that's coming from a PE teacher who teaches about half the time outside in, in practical lessons and half the time actually in the classroom uh, and even I, I found that like, the work was just so much. Um, I think I think the biggest thing is um, I, I went to Michaela school a few years back and I had the absolute pleasure of, of going into Joe Face's lesson, uh, she teaches some English lessons and I knew about this whole class feedback system that was in place, and so on. And, and again, it's one of those things, you know, I've read about it on Twitter, I heard people talking about it, but hadn't gone to source. And I went to go and see Joe's lesson, and oh my god, the most amazing lesson I've ever seen. You know, she clearly, I remember meeting her beforehand, and she was showing me the scraps of paper that she was writing this, this, the whole class feedback on, and she said, look. I've I will at some point need to turn this into some sort of pro forma and, and make it a bit more like formalized. But this is what I did. I read a book, load of books last night. Um, probably took me like 20 minutes, whatever it was. can't on, how long she told me, but it wasn't long at all. Went through all the books, and I literally did the following things. I wrote down the, the fantastic bits of work on a bit, so I could praise those kids in lesson. I wrote down some people who I need to go and have a quiet sit next to and, and obviously work with. Um, I wrote down key spellings which were incorrectly spelt and so on. Um, I also wrote down the key things on specific parts of work which I was looking for. Um, Do good planning. These are the bits I was, I was focusing on of, of misconceptions and potentially maybe where I caused misconceptions and so on. And then in the lesson, with this little bit of paper in her hand, which effectively became like a lesson plan, she would go through and it was just amazing. And the students were all armed with pens. Um, you know, we use purple pens in our lessons and so on. Um, and as she went through I just saw the way that the students were were being questioned about what misconception happened and she re-explained it but she re-explained it differently and she talked through examples again she used to visualise and so on and the students in the classroom in, in pure silence fully immersed in what she was saying were just improving their work as they were going along in purple pen and, or, or, or green pen whatever it was and I just sat at the back of the room and I thought this is just phenomenal Joe was spent not long marking books. She knows precisely what is wrong in terms of the, the learning of that lesson that particularly happened. She knows where it probably gone wrong because she's reflected about it, and then she's now delivering better uh, a follow up lesson, which is just closing gaps all over the show. And it was just phenomenal. Um, and I thought that was just brilliant. And it just kind of puts into the effect things like dirt time and so on, and effectively finding that time in lessons where students take ownership after you've retaught something in a different way. Um, Because obviously your explanation was the thing which caused the confusion. So you'd be teaching in a different way. And students have that dedicated time to close that gap. And I think that is a big thing. Because otherwise, you know, what I used to do is, I'd mark books, there'd be something wrong. Um, I'd write tons of comments, which which took my time. Kids never read it. And they never had any chance to to close the gap on it. Um, But Joe's way was just phenomenal. To the point, succinct well informed and there was that excellent time afterwards and, and it was just beautiful to watch <laughs>
0: that's that's brilliant it's amazing to amazing to hear and i'm sure joe would be uh, delighted to, to hear you talk so highly over um your chapter on on differentiation really hit the nail on the head for me because differentiation is something that, that sometimes I, I i really struggle with and I had trouble with, it, with the ideas of it. And I really enjoyed reading your chapter there and, and I took a lot from it. But what did you, you realise about your own approach to differentiation and, and how does that differ to what you do now?
1: Oh, I, I think I, I was suckered straight in from, from teacher training about all must, could, should, some won't, don't, that sort of thing, okay? All the different chili factor levels and that sort of thing. Um, and I realised what we're doing is we're just setting lower standard work for like the less able um, and then or, or those with less prior knowledge and we were setting higher work for those that we perceived to be more able have more prior knowledge and that sort of thing and it just just the, the gaps kept opening up um, and I remember when I was going through it you know I read I read Doug Lemoff's book no, uh, no not Doug Lemoff's uh, Ron Berger's book an ethic of excellence and again if you've never read that and I know that some people kind of look at all projects should be projects and so on that and I even mentioned in my book in the planner section you know if 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 projects aren't your thing, and I've tried projects, it didn't work for me, so I don't do them anymore. But if there's nothing to take from that book, it's the fact that students can produce some phenomenal work. You know, in his book he's talking about like students um producing architect plans and stuff like that, or producing radon reports which towns were using to validate their insurance and exactly like you know this is phenomenal work for, for school students and things which which professionals go away and train for. And I know it's not the same as obviously a trained architects and that sort of stuff but the point is proven is that students can produce exceptional work and with all these us uh, all must could some must whatever it is okay we, because we're not setting the highest benchmark for some of our students with those things students never have the opportunity or don't believe they're ever ever going to get really really high um and produce work was exceptional and i think you know when i read about um um, you know, Rosenthal and Jackson, the, the, uh, the Pygmalion effect, and then the Golem effect, which was some of the follow-up work they did. You know, you need to set hard work as hard as you possibly can. You need to scaffold up a, as much as you can. And we use lots of different writing frames and lessons. We use graphic organisers. We use just teaching strategies like, um, like ABC questions and things like that, where we're looking for the, the highest standard in work and answers to questions, that sort of stuff. And we scaffold to get up there because every child, you know, like I said, Ron Berg has proven that children can produce some exceptional work with some fantastic feedback, structure, and things like that. And we also need to go into our lessons and, and aim the highest we can. And like I said, get rid of those all must kids. Everybody tries to do the highest thing possible, and we just scaffold up. I think Daniel T. Williams says we need to make the thinking easier, not the task. And that's, that's exactly right. Have the highest task. Can we scaffold all the way up, release that scaffold and let's get kids to produce the most exceptional work, be relentless on it. And kids will, will love the fact that you've been quite brutal at times because they'll end up with a bit of work where they're so proud and, and and they'll produce work, which is just an exceptional standard. And again, I'm going to go back to, to Michaela's school that um, they shared some work with me. And I remember coming back. Uh, I took a photo of it, some English work and I came back to, um, again, last year to run an inset session. And I was talking about differentiation and i projected this piece of work on the board and said what year group produced this and loads of kids, loads of teachers going oh that, that's like a year 10 year 11 gcc and i was like no that that's michaela school's year seven work and they were like oh my god i didn't think year sevens could do that because we don't believe it so these really high expectations aim high support up and be relentless in what we do and i think we can see some phenomenal stuff and and, and that's kind of been the mantra now for, for how we deliver lessons here
0: no definitely you referenced it eh, ronberger quite a bit in, in that chapter and it's definitely a book that that i would highly recommend other people leading because as you say he, he got like amazing workout our young people and we can all do that we can all if if we are relentless if if we demand excellence yeah, I, I i say that to a lot, a lot of my a lot of children i, I like I, dem- I want to demand quality from you whether we're learning how to how to do a set shot in, in basketball i want you to i want you to to demonstrate quality in everything you do none of this half-hearted nonsense that some people do i want quality from you and it's the same it's the same with any piece of work if we can do that and as you say appropriately scaffold scaffold up and kind of as daniel t willing said if we can if we can make the thinking a little bit the easier but to keep the task to actually the, the children will rise to that and um, just to, to finish up the, the interview section Um literacy across the curriculum is everyone's responsibility in scotland and and you you discussed let's say at length in your book it, it was it was one of your biggest chapters, and and I think uh, being a P teacher myself I, I, I really enjoyed reading that chapter and, and and respect the the length that you gave it and why is it so important and, and what strategies do you use to get excellence from your young people in terms of literacy?
1: Um, here we go. So again, first six years of teaching, I remember literacy kind of like cropped up on the board and stuff like that and and again as a novice teacher um, I kind of assumed it was the English teachers which taught English and we'd get the benefits of it as such and I remember like the the whole school literacy um, push and drive came out and in each like classroom we had a box and in the box had dictionaries and this that and the other and so on and again I just thought it was a tick box and thing which kind of came on the side and it wasn't until, like I said, I went through and had that mass reflective period, and just sat down and read all the books, and realised no, actually, it's every teacher needs to be in, in involved in this. You know, if my kids in my lesson are unable to structure a, a, a succinct paragraph, I can't hope that as an English teacher is doing it. And again, this is so naive of me back at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realised it's, it's up to us. Um, and again, but nobody had told me that. Nobody had taught me that. We'd all looked at other things, but how to deliver. Lessons and how to think about planning structures and so on, but never ever thought about that. Actually, literally, biggest part of our lesson was there. Um, so I think taking it as a bolt on off your lesson is is really really important. Um, I think I spent the most time on that that chapter as well because again, reading von Berger's book, I realised that my kids can, can potentially write much better. Um, so there's loads of stuff that you know obviously which which we we worked on. Um, it sounds quite brutal, but you know um, I think I talk about. I think Claire uh, Caroline Spalding, I think, talked to me uh, about obviously how we need to be relentless on the basics. Um, and and I've got, I've got a little thing things stuck in my students' books now where I said, if your work is messy, you're going to have to rewrite it out. Um, and I know it sounds quite harsh and there's not many students who have had to, to do that. But again, I want them to be to value their presentation. And I want them to think as they're writing about the quality of their handwriting. And I'm quite, quite, I may seem quite strict and, and so on, you know, but, you know, I, I want them to to make sure that they are producing work, which is presented so well, that they can be proud of it. And also that that people can read it and stuff like that. Um, In terms of some of the strategies that I've used, um, you know, I I, I do a lot of work on like tier one to tier three vocabulary. um, And every time there's a new word that comes up, um, whether it's a tier three subject specific or whether it's a tier two um, common use word and so on, like analysis, for example, you know we spend time talking about what does this actually mean uh and we spend time to, to break down the question that the, the word and stuff so so students can understand what the word is asking them to look for and things like that which again you know i'm sure lots of other teachers do but it's it's that time to kind of look through it um we do a lot of things on writing frames as well um but frames which you can take away and that doesn't mean for instance, that, you know, um, I, I hate peed and peel and that sort of stuff, um, which you know, a lot of schools are, are running with. Um, but we look at obviously um, things like the four part process, um, which Lee Donaghy, um, he wrote about on his blog um, about having a thing with a connective, and you give the definition, and then you d- explain um, the meaning of it afterwards, and little things like that in your classroom are absolutely fantastic to kind of like structure students writing and get them to understand how to make a sentence look like a sentence and things like that, you know, um, again, really, really good. Um, but then after a while, you kind of like take that that framework away um, and then they, they kind of can write more freely. Um, but we use also things like um, Doug Lemoff uh, talked about like, at first glance, the three-word sentence starters, but with a twist. Uh, and again, the, I used use sentence starters, once to kind of got into the swing of things, but reading Doug Lemoff's blog, it's about changing the sentence starters so they kind of provoke thought. So instead of saying, like, um, uh, the heart has, you know, as my three-word sentence starter, and then students can say, it has ventricles and atrium so on, Um, I I might have now, uh, um, like, ventricles main role. So now they're thinking really hard about what ventricles main role. um, Without valves, blood, and then they can finish off that. Rather than say we have valves, I'm getting to just tweak the way I did my three-word sentence starters, and they can then obviously go forward and kind of reword that and so on um i kind of think of the last thing as well is it's to do with the modeling process um and again every time that we i set structured writing in a lesson now i either use um the visualizer in, in two different ways so one of them is to do things like i do we do you do so i will set like a, a nine mark question i will do the first paragraph live written with the students I get them to look at it. I explain what's good about it and that sort of thing. I pick out the key points. Then we, as a, as a class, then construct the next one. I think the best one is I literally write what the students tell me to write. And I write it down word for word as they say and so on. And then we literally then stand back. I stand at the back of the room and say, right, let's have a look at it. What's wrong with it? And I read it out and go, this makes no sense. So then I go back to the front of the board and we literally scribble right over things and so on. So that second paragraph that we created now makes sense. Then I go, right, guys, do you understand it? Off you go. You now finish up the third paragraph and so on. It's that sort of visualising um, and modelling and so on, which is so important. And just getting kids work under the visualiser as well um, in that safe, secure environment, just, just just, the wealth of good to see kids work up on the screen and then working together. But again, it must have the opportunity afterwards and for the students which are looking at a piece of work being modelled on the board to have time with a purple pen for us to then make corrections to their work so their work becomes stronger as a result of looking at this model so it kind of it's not about setting literacy tasks like um oh you must use a dictionary no it's about you getting in and you teaching how to write and you being involved in that process of writing and you modeling what good writing is rather than just setting some good nine mark questions with a writing frame and let them get on with it you have to be a part of that writing process and again you know those are like the, the the biggest things which have just had a, a an astronomical in, impact on my my teaching now it's just phenomenal
0: brilliant um so so they we have basically had a had a whistle top tour through your book and, and for anyone listening I would highly recommend the the buy your book I mean for me it's something that I'm going to use to dip in and out of for for different things for for possibly the rest of my career um but could you tell listeners uh Two things, where they could find the book and, and also a little bit about where they could find it hear, or hear more from you.
1: Uh, okay, so um, the book's available on Amazon, um, which, which obviously is accessible, Relearn to Teach, um, but also through the Routledge website as well. They've got a fantastic section on there, the author's section on there. We can type it in there and it is, is available through there. Um, throughout this year, um, we're not running Teach and Learn Takeover um, which is which, uh, a bit sad and a lot of people keep like DMing me saying, is it coming back? Is it coming back? But uh, Jenny and I did that for five years. Um, so unfortunately, that's not going to happen this year. But I'm doing work for uh, research, ed, research Ed. I'm going back to Darrington for, I think, my third year this year. Um, so I'm going back there to obviously lead some sessions or lead a session on there. Um, yet to be confirmed what it will be about. Um, but but that, that's pretty much my year. It's going to be a quiet year this year. Obviously, after two years of writing and kind of neglecting the family a little bit, it's time to now kind of immerse myself back in that aspect and and enjoy that.
0: Right. What about social media and your blog? Do you still write that, and and can people find out more about you there?
1: Yeah, so um, Twitter is at uh, DavidFawcett27. The blog blog took a bit of a back burner because I was too scared. And even on Twitter, Twitter I went a bit quiet as well um, on the stage because – I didn't want to share stuff on Twitter and on my blog, which I was writing in my book, because I'd be worried that people wouldn't read my book because I put it on my blog. So I took, and also I didn't the stuff that I was going into so much more depth now. I didn't have time to then kind of refine things down into a blog post because I'd realised things are so complicated that you can only explain it in a chapter in a book. Um, So the blog is a bit a bit quiet at the moment. Uh, once they have given the book, obviously, uh, probably a few months to kind of get out there and, and people have read it and so on. Uh, there's some things I'm doing now. You know, uh, I remember Harry Fletcher Wood, even last week or the week before, um, sent a blog post out about questioning uh, and the balance between flexible and inflexible knowledge. And I think Adam Box has been sending stuff out about using Bloom's taxonomy and, and, and how it's been used wrong and stuff. And little things I hadn't thought about. And they've kind of begun to stimulate my thought process again. Uh, which I hadn't done for the last couple of years because I was so immersed in getting the book done. So I think I need a few more of, of these amazing bloggers to kind of like inspire me, make me think again. Maybe half the stuff in my book will be defunct by that point. But um, <laughs> it, 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 I, need, I need to get the inspiration back. So um, I'm definitely going to be doing a bit more reading rather than than tweeting and blogging at the moment to kind of just kind of push myself on a bit more and challenge myself for section.
0: Brilliant. And, okay.
1: Time now for, for my
0: final three questions that, that I'm asking asking everyone if, if you are up for that. Yeah, go for it. Um, so my first one is, um, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career?
1: Well, I thought about this. I, um, I'm going to be annoying. I'm going to go three. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's not it that like one. But uh, in terms of every single teacher needs to have a, a full understanding of the brain. It's Daniel T. Williams, Why Don't Students Like School? I know there are more complex books out there, more complex research papers out there, but oh my God, it gives you the best insight for a novice beginner about how the brain works. It's phenomenal. Uh, Graham Nuttall's, The Hidden Life of Learners. You think you know what's going on in your classroom, but you really don't. Um, and that just it tells you so much about Axley for his, his all the time that they they researched classrooms and, and took transcripts and videoed and recordings and so on. The stuff that goes in your lesson, you don't realize happens. It's brilliant. And then Ron Berger, uh, an ethic of excellent again just to make us more pygmalion and think we can get the highest standards out of our students no matter what ability level we can we can push for more and don't write kids off so they're my, my top three brilliant
0: um if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher what would it be
1: oh, it's got to be ask more why the whole book okay i think the the, the actual book is understanding the great principles of teaching. And I think in my, in my opener, I talk about more teachers is to ask why, why are they doing the things in their lessons? Why are they uh, planning this, this way? Why are they uh, using feedback in this particular way? Why are they asking that question? Why are they doing modeling in this particular way? If they understand the why, then I think they'll understand obviously teaching in more depth and that's just going to transcend into other elements of teaching as they go forward. It's, it's the why don't just do things. Don't just do the what, do the why.
0: Thank you. Um, one thing that really interests me, and, and I'm kind of really fascinated to hear different people's uh, different takes on this, but what do you think most gets in the way of great teaching? Uh,
1: right. um, I think. I think two things. Again, this is not everyone's experience. This is my experience. I think, firstly... Um, I sometimes think workloads and as as much as schools are trying their hardest to eradicate workloads you know things always crop up there's always that email there's always that thing you got to go and, and and fill in or the data that has got to be due and so like that and I think that some of these things are essential and some of these things are the foundation of great teaching but I think sometimes some of the admin that kind of goes with it as much as we're trying to get rid of it Um, still gets into the way you know if we eradicate some of the workload maybe teachers got more time to collaborate maybe they got more time to sit down and plan reflect on their 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 lessons and 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 their learning about teaching and stuff like that Um, because i just don't think we have enough time i don't think i don't think teachers when i was my learning innovator role my I, i had time set to me to sit in our school library and i was sitting there two three times a week reading about teaching you know i don't think Day-to-day now, in my, uh, my new role as head of the department, I never have time. My, my colleagues don't have time to do that, you know, and, and it's, it's work that links to it. And I think also the second thing is, again, because you don't have the time, we kind of find quick fixes, silver bullets, shortcuts, um, fads and things like that. And I think teachers, again, need to go back to what I said a minute ago. We need We need to understand the why of teaching more. And then kind of get that thirst to understand more about something and how it works and why it works and why this might be better and so on. I think if we can get workload down and allow teachers more time, um, uh, you know, that could that may maybe a government thing, obviously more funding, more free periods and things like that, or maybe just be a workload thing. I think then we'll have more time for ourselves then to then to, to pick up why about teaching and have more chance to research and read and, And reflect on how we're doing, and collaborate, and things like that. If we get those two things right, I think we can all be outstanding teachers. Which I can't believe just said that. We can all be great teachers.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. If you want to find out more about what was discussed today, please head over to my website, becomingeducated.co.uk. And finally, if you haven't done so already, I would really love it if you were to subscribe to the podcast. That way. All future episodes will be downloaded directly into your feed. And before you go, please always remember to teach with joy.